Well, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thanks, Pastor Thomas, for that kind, your kind introduction. I'm, I'm sorry it took three years uh, for us to <laughs> get together here. But I mean, I know God had a reason for that, and I'm so thankful for the things he's probably taught me in these past three years. I think three years ago, I wouldn't be preaching on uh, why we need to care for the abused and the vulnerable. But thank you guys so much um, for being here and, and wanting to listen to a message like this. Let me just start us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity you give us to worship you to sing your praise, to hear your word, and to let it organize our hearts around our great Savior. Lord, as I stand here uh, before my brothers and sisters th this morning, I, we, I, I stand here because of your grace. You've been so good to me to um, allow me and our counseling ministry to walk alongside uh, sisters and Children who have been hurt in the domestic violence setting, Lord, we, I, I know of your grace in this setting only because um, I stand on the shoulders of those who have suffered. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow me to take this stewardship um, and, and use it to love Grace Hill well as they come alongside one another, as they uh, seek to be witnesses of your gospel and to minister to those who are in need in their community and, and to one another in the different ways they might see suffering in each other's lives. Lord, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for how they are, know one another, how they're, uh, as, as Pastor Thomas said, uh, are a family that wants to spend time together. I pray you just continue to build that uh, family mindset that they would really know one another fully, that they would know each other's stories, and they would be able to bring the beautiful, redemptive gospel story to one another again and again, and then continue to seek you and build one another up. So thank you, Father. Use this message, this, uh, this time together to, to equip us to build our hearts to be even more centered on Christ and to worship you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, again, thank you for having me. I, I love the summer series that you're doing, good news, what we all need in our lives. I think it's vital to consider how the gospel speaks to the various issues that we face in our lives and it lets us see the power of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. But I think it also allows us to be honest about the real needs that are there. Like we need to be honest about the brokenness and the neediness in our lives and in our church and in our community. And so to bring those two things together, the, the good news of the gospel and just an honest look at our neediness and brokenness is so vital. So I pray that today that you would see the beauty of the gospel shining forth even as we take an honest look at the brokenness involved in understanding abuse. As we approach today's topic, I know there's a spectrum uh, of ways you as a church might relate to a topic like this. So I just want to say a few words to each of you. If abuse has been something you've faced, maybe in a relationship, maybe growing up, I just want to thank you for your courage to be here. Um, as we walk through this topic today, I pray that you experience the Spirit of God strengthening your heart with what is true about who you are and who your God is. If you have been a helper to someone who has gone through the darkness of abuse, I want to just thank you for your help. Almost all who suffer in this way would not find a way through it without helpers. Someone standing in their life and advocating for them and thinking practically about their safety. 
Or perhaps you're here and you've been abusive to a spouse or to a child. And I'm thankful that you're here as well. And I pr pray that today you'll find clear steps you can take in a path toward real repentance and change. Or perhaps for you, abuse is something you've only read about or seen in movies. Abuse may feel like this marginal struggle that's really removed from your lived experience. Maybe it seems too terrible to be real. Maybe abuse seems vague, largely undefined, really overused. And my great hope is that we would be able to define it clearly so that you would be able to both identify it and be in a position to help those who have suffered in this way. So to kind of start, I want to share a little bit about my background. I'm the, as Pastor Thomas said, I'm the pastor for counseling at Lighthouse Community Church in Torrance. And over the past several years, God has given us the challenge to counsel some very difficult domestic violence cases. So as a counseling pastor, I've met with men who believe that leadership in the home means that the, means that the husband's preference always wins. And because of the pride and selfishness of their hearts, I've walked with men who beat their children to a pulp, who've attempted to kill their wives, who spied on their wives. I've counseled men who controlled their wives' eating, their clothing, their makeup, the streets they were allowed to drive on, set limits on their Bible reading. I've sat with men who refused to allow their wives to use their hands when they spoke and would not allow their wives to show emotion in conversation. And of, of course, I've met with men who hit and pushed and chased and threatened their wives. And those are just the men who've agreed to meet with me. I've spent much more time with victims, those who have been on the receiving end of all that sin that I just listed and much more. But the victims usually come in because they see themselves as the problem person right, in the relationship. So they, they come in to get help because they're just riddled with guilt over how often they displease their husbands or, or their parents. And slowly we work to help them see that they are actually in fact suffering at the hands of someone else's sin. So abuse isn't something we're talking about now because it's growing, it's a growing problem in our society. This is a problem that has always been there and it's finally getting some exposure. The National Center for Injury Prevention and Control says that one in four spouses are in an abusive marriage and that 85% of abused spouses are women. And what is so scary is that those statistics are the same both in the church and outside of the church. But there is hope. Psalm 103 verse 6 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And, and we're going to look at that psalm later today. But how does the Lord work righteousness and justice for the oppressed? I think one way he does that is he raises up and equips churches who care for the oppressed, who know how to care. But I would say even beyond that is... He works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed by giving us Christ. In the gospel, Christ suffered. He was maligned. His life was regularly threatened. He was tortured. He died and rose again so that even those living in the most dangerous abuse situations could know his love. A love that only tells you the truth. A love that will never abandon you a love that will never manipulate you, that fully understands and accepts you, that promises to carry you through the darkest valleys of this life by grace. 
This is the love of our great God to those who suffer. And it's a love that not only meets us, not only meets us in our suffering, but equips us to help each other. So my hope for those who suffer abuse is that churches like Grace Hill and others would understand that love, would understand abuse, and be equipped to bring Christ's love to each other. So Grace Hill, I just want to thank you. I've, I've written on abuse. I, I've done workshops on abuse. I've helped build support groups in churches for victims. But you are one of the very few churches that I've met who is willing to dedicate an entire Sunday morning worship service to this topic. And so I pray that many churches would learn from your desire to care. And your church gives me great hope. So to help equip you this morning and to serve you, I'm just going to talk about the wrong and right uses of power in relationships. Power is the focus because none of this would happen without power. So first we're going to look at abuse as power that presses down. Power that presses down. There are many helpful definitions of abuse out there, and they all say similar things, but our counseling ministry has come to define abuse this way. We define it as a pattern of shaming tactics used to exercise or maintain power and control over someone where the victim regularly feels unclean, exposed, rejected, helpless, and dependent on their abuser. The goal of abuse is controlling someone by throwing them off balance at the core of who they are, their personhood. There's a loss of this sense of identity as their world now revolves around the person dominating their life. It really is a battle of kingdoms. Right? I, I am now forced in or pushed in such a strong way to seek the kingdom of the person who is now dominating in my life. We use the word pattern because establishing power over another person rarely happens through a one-time event. Now, there could be abusive action that's more intense, right? Like, oh, he only pushed me that one time. He only pushed me down the stairs that one time. He only hit me that one time. But for those larger expressions of abuse to occur, there are likely other patterns at work. And once those larger displays of abuse occur, very little needs to be done to instill fear and to control someone. Right, so like after a major incident, like a beating, a, an abuser can likely instill fear and control someone else just with a look, like with a glance, or with a way they sigh in front of them. Other shaming tactics involve things like name-calling, saying demeaning things, criticizing frequently, constantly pointing out failures, things like to, to cook or to clean, making fun of shortcomings, insulting family and friends, driving recklessly to frighten, using the voice or body language to intimidate, threatening suicide, refusing to leave someone alone, sulking angrily, refusing to talk for days, or even acting like a victim to increase a partner's guilt. Now, these actions and more we call punishing behaviors or shaming tactics because they're designed to fill a victim with confusion and doubt and fear and guilt and worry and anger and depression so that they are just entirely dependent on the abuser. They need that abuser to tell them how to think and feel, to tell them what's real. 
And the longer a person is held hostage in, that type, in those types of patterns, it puts that abuser in greater positions of authority as the victim becomes weaker and more dependent on the abuser. Leslie Vernick uh, describes an ab abusive relationship this way. She says, one's personhood, dignity, and freedom of choice is regularly denied, criticized, or crushed. And this can be done through words, behaviors, economics, attitudes, and misusing scripture. Now you might be thinking, I've done some of these things. Maybe in my marriage, in my parenting. Am I an abuser? But an important question to ask yourself, if you've done any of the things I just mentioned, is what did you do afterwards? If you or I get angry and yell at our partner or our kids, what comes after that? We ask for forgiveness, right? We humble ourselves. We repent. We tell others, like our accountability partners, we ask for prayer. We, we bring light into our darkness so no one is isolated in our sin. It doesn't mean it never happens again, but we respond to our sin with humility and repentance. In an abusive relationship, you don't repent. Yelling is part of a larger pattern to isolate and control another person. You don't ask for forgiveness, humble yourself, invite accountability and change. In fact, usually the victim is the one asking for forgiveness for displeasing you in some way. So to discern abuse, it's helpful to look at three aspects of this sin. So I want to sh show three levels of assessment, and you'll see it up here on the screen too. The intention, behavior, and outcome. I think this is where scripture really brings light into this darkness. Intention, behavior, and outcome. The first is intention. Like, what does God's word say about the desires of my heart when it comes to this thing that I'm, I'm doing, this decision I'm making? What did I want that I was not getting? Did I want to be respected or I wanted to be understood? What was I afraid of losing? Was I afraid of losing control in a situation? Was this a selfish desire or selfless? Was it prideful or humble? What was my motive in this action? Remember, that is what God wants us to see more than anything. He wants us to see our hearts. Right? His kingdom is the kingdom of the heart. Right? According to Luke 6.45, everything we say or do comes from the overflow of the heart. Right? Our heart determines what we worship, what we live for, what we desire. So first, we need to see intention. Second is behavior. Did I bear good fruit? Were my actions good fruits? Did they demonstrate the Spirit's work? Right? So if I look at what I just did in this relationship, if I took James 3, you know, 17 and 18, or Galatians 5, or 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7, would I see myself in, that, in those words? Were my actions peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, patient, kind, self-controlled, not insisting on its own way. So was it good fruit? The third is outcome. <clears throat> Are others flourishing and growing as I use my power and influence to serve them? Right, according to Psalm 128 verse 3, a man who fears the Lord, that is, who makes Christ central in, in the home rather than himself, his wife will be like a fruitful vine and his children like olive shoots. Right? This does not mean that we can control the outcome of our children's salvation or anything like that. But when we are controlled by the Spirit of God, 
when Christ is at the center, when we are seeking his kingdom and not trying to establish our own, then our family members should flourish, not wither. I mean, even when you're evaluating an elder for your church, for ministry, you do the same thing according to 1 Timothy 3. You look at their home. You ask, how is their family doing? Are they flourishing? Does he serve his family or does he lord his authority over them? So when we're investigating abuse, we look at intention, behavior, and outcomes, knowing that fruit doesn't lie. But sadly, it can be difficult to see the negative impact of abuse unless you've known that person for a long time. Often it takes a friend who's known that victim for a long time to perceive the negative changes that are happening in their life. And this is why it's vital for church families to be closely acquainted with each other. So go to all church retreat. Be in each other's lives. We need, to be, we need to know one another. We have to be in each other's lives to notice changes and to ask questions. Why is that expressive person so much more withdrawn these days? She was such a gifted artist. Why did she stop drawing? She was such a great writer. Why doesn't she write anymore? Why has she stopped coming to small group and serving? As long as an oppressor is able to use their power to control another person, there will no longer be room for that person to do anything but to live for the one who is in power. If you suspect child abuse, of course, it's important to report it. But for spousal abuse, it's not that simple. I'm going to talk more about that a little bit later. So if, if you're seeing those changes in someone, start by asking your friend some questions like, do you feel free to give input in decisions at home? What happens when you disagree with your spouse? Do you ever feel fearful around your partner? Does your spouse, how does your spouse express disapproval? Do you have a voice in your marriage? Now, their answers might not immediately indicate abuse, but they can be starting points to understand how power and influence are used in a relationship. I mean, pretty soon you should be able to see whose kingdom is being established in this home. Is it Christ's kingdom or is it someone else's? A clear example in scripture of using power to press down and harm are the Pharisees. So I, wa I want us to look at a list of how they use their influence in society to isolate and control people. I got this list from Darby Strickland's book, Is It Abuse?, which I highly recommend. I'll say it one more time. Darby Strickland's book, Is It Abuse?, I highly recommend it. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus describes the actions of the Pharisees as placing heavy and difficult burdens on people's shoulders and not lifting a finger to help. And why do they do this? It made an entire culture of people dependent on them to know how to live, to know what to do, right? It gave them power. So all of Christ's woes against the Pharisees in Matthew 23 are incredibly harsh. The harshest words he speaks in all, of the, in all of his ministry, Matthew 23, they're so harsh because so much is at stake. Those who followed the Pharisees were burdened with the wrong things, and it kept them from following God and seeking his kingdom. So just look at this list. I think it's up here. Like shutting up the kingdom in verse 13, stealing from the vulnerable in verse 14, leading their converts on the wrong path in verse 15, making them children of hell, converting them to an untrue religion that preached performance over a relationship with the Lord, verse 15, 
promoting technicalities that could be used to get out of oaths that had been made, verses 16 through 22. Being obsessed with trivialities while neglecting more important matters of the law, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness, which left people vulnerable. Being full of greed and self-indulgence, verse 25, and persecuting those they were called to shepherd, verse 34. The Pharisees spoke guilt-inducing and shaming words over their culture and inflicted great harm as they bent God's words and misused his name to manipulate people and lead them away from God. But they could only get away with this because of their position of power. They might have told themselves that they were trying to help people love God, but the, uh, they might have looked at their actions and thought they were righteous, but the outcomes don't lie. Right? Christ in Matthew 23 is listing all of the outcomes of their actions. Not only did the Pharisees cause incredible suffering because of the shaming that they were doing or the financial extortion of widows and others, not only did the Pharisees cause great suffering, but most of all, those who followed them were taught to seek the kingdom of the Pharisees, not the kingdom of God. I've sat with, hun- I've sat with husbands and tried to help them see that their wife is confused, anxious, afraid, and their kids are struggling with anxiety and guilt as well. But they didn't see how the health of their home had anything to do with their leadership. But especially for leaders, right? In any setting that we are in as leaders, we look at the health of our team that we're leading, and that gives us some feedback on how we're doing as leaders, right? I mean, if we're using our power to serve and build up and support and encourage and strengthen, then we should expect that our team is going to be strong and and, and healthy and happy. And we'll talk more about this in a minute, but husbands and fathers in particular, we are called to be the lead servants in our homes, to initiate a culture of servanthood in the home. And we expect that we are going to receive greater accountability before God for the health of our homes. Well, that's what we're going to explore next. How do we use all that God has entrusted to us to lift others up and restore them? I have such limited time. I I usually give like three-hour workshops on abuse, but that's just a glimpse of what power looks like when it's used to press down and harm. Now let's look at the model that Christ left us. He used everything at his disposal to serve, honor, and restore. And so that's our second point, power that lifts up and restores. Whenever uh, abuse happens in the church, we've learned that it takes a team approach to respond. Accountability partners that keep an abuser in check, an advocate for the victim, and a pastor to oversee the care. The advocate will be trained to discern the lethality of the situation. We use the Johns Hopkins Lethality Index to understand danger. Um, usually, the easy way, easiest way to do that, I think, is just to have them download the My Plan app, which has that Johns Hopkins, Hopkins Lethality Index on their phone. It has a safety plan built in. The advocates traditionally are the people who represent the victim's voice to the team and help the team consider legal options. With adult victims, like I said, it's never as simple like with child abuse where you just report. It's never that simple. You have to make sure that for adults that the victim is in a safe place and that they want you to report. Otherwise, it could be putting them in greater danger. And that's why spousal abuse is not a mandatory reporting category in the state of California. They understand the danger 
If you'd like more help considering the legal issues and finding an advocate, I'd recommend talking with social workers who's, who are certified in advocacy or your local women's shelters. Just, by the way, praise God for advocates and, and women's shelters. I, I feel like almost every other week I'm, I hear of domestic violence. I do consults pretty regularly for other churches and maybe mission organizations. And just this week and weeks before that, I, I, I got consult questions around domestic violence for situations in Japan and in Mexico. And we are blessed to have, shelter, to have advocates, to have people we can talk to, to have police who actually care about these types of situations. In those other places, I'm trying to help churches think through how can they be the church and do everything that where we lean on police or advocates or people outside of the church for. But as churches, we do want safety, but we want more than safety. We want survivors to have a vision for redemption. So in addition to considering the legal steps, here is the definition we like to use in our counseling ministry when it comes to long-term advocating for victims. We say an advocate is a relationship defined by helping someone lament, helping them begin to see their story as God sees it, and slowly helping them see their Redeemer's voice as the most truthful, powerful, cleansing, covering, and accepting voice in their life. And that's something we can all do. We all can do this. We all should have that job description in each other's lives. Now, as you can imagine, it's, it's slow and it takes time, but that's why the church family is the best place for advocate relationships like this to exist because we're not going anywhere. Like, we are together. We're family. We're committed to walking together, growing together, building each other up for the long haul. At the most basic level, an advocate is someone who uses their relationship to lift up and restore like Christ did. This is the dynamic of love we see in Christ. And there are so many passages we could look at uh, for seeing this love in Christ. But for the sake of time, I just want us to consider a few glimpses of him using this power from Psalm 103. Look at just the first few verses of Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, in all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And if you have a physical Bible and, and you like writing in your Bible, I would say write relational dynamics next to that word benefits. And I'll tell you why in a second. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. There are so many beautiful ways God uses his power and authority in our lives. And I love that they're all called benefits. There is no way that your God uses his power in your life that doesn't benefit you. That is his only relational dynamic with you. Just benefit after benefit after benefit. That's it. That's the only way you experience him. He experiences you in different ways, right? You worship him, but sometimes you worship idols. Sometimes you sin against him. He just gives you benefit after benefit. That is the only way your God relates to you. Benefit after benefit. 
That's it. Can you imagine reaching into your parenting tool belt and thinking, all right, what benefit have I received from God that fits this moment? What benefits of the gospel can I connect to this moment in my child's life or my friend's life, my spouse's life? Is this a moment for compassion? Is this a moment for gentleness? Is this a moment for forgiveness? Is this a moment for mercy? Is this a moment for patience? Does that sound like the way we relate? That's the only way God relates to us. It might sound impossible, but because Christ is in us, there is power in us to display the love of God, even in the most difficult moments. And when we do this, we are using his power to lift others up rather than to condemn them or shame them. Think of the expression on your, on your face the last time someone sinned against you. Particularly if it's your child and if it's the same wrong they've committed that you have corrected 8,000 times. I'm guessing there's some experience of that in this room. Are you 40 kids now? You are witnessing selfishness in them, maybe the incessant word mine, the hitting, maybe hurting words, lying. What does your child receive from you in that moment? What do those close to you receive from you when they wrong you? Do they get gospel benefits? Think about how long you might stay upset. Do you ignore them? When you suffer wrong, do you withdraw? Do you physically move into another room, put in your headphones, pretend you're not hearing? Do you respond with short answers or, or not at all? Do you kind of have a cancel culture in your mind that removes someone from your circle? Sadly, even with our children or those close to us, we can isolate them. In the face of someone else's sin, I would say especially our children, can you draw near and talk about God's steadfast love that is so great that nothing they do will ever change your commitment to care for them? If you have regularly shut down, withheld your affection, or moved away to punish or to make them feel bad, can you seek their forgiveness and remind them that even when you fail, God never pulls away. He never withholds his love. He only gives benefits. Men, if we are honest, does our authority in the home look like a crown of gold for ruling our kingdoms? Or does it look like a crown of thorns for sacrificing and serving our Savior's kingdom? Are we the lead servants? Are we the first to get up from the table when someone needs something? Are we quick to be aware of the needs around us and offer help? Do we look out for the interests of our wives and children and count them as more significant than our own? I'm going to pause here just because it's vital for us, for parents, especially dads, to get this right. I mean, do we oppress? Where do we oppress? What is your child's experience of your authority? Will they look back and consider all of the benefits of your love? all the ways you taught them about Christ and move them deeper into enjoying God's love? Or will your authority be more like the Pharisees, burdening your children with the wrong things so that ultimately they turn away from God's kingdom? If you would like help considering how to do this practically, I recommend start by doing an inventory of your advantages in, in any relationship that you're in. 
just consider how you're using those advantages. Right? Christ had every advantage in, in his relationships. He has all the power in the universe. He made the universe. He used all of his advantages to serve. So if I consider my relationship with my wife, G, and she wishes she could be here. She's serving at our church this morning. She's on the worship team. So I wish my, my wife and my two boys could be here today. But if I'm considering how I use my advantages, I'm I, I, doing an advantage inventory with my wife, I would need to note several things. First, and I'm not trying to brag here, but I'm taller than her, right? I'm, I'm, I'm stronger than her. I'm faster than her. I've had a lot more training in theology and framing theological arguments. I'm the main source of our family's income. She's a stay-at-home mom. I'm a pastor at her church, which means I have significant influence over her circle of friends. They're going to see me in a certain way. And I have more freedom to kind of go out and do things usually during the day because she's usually at home caring for our children. So I need to know my advantages. If my goal is to win ever in any situation, I have a number of advantages to use. So it's vital that I talk about with her how I, and with my accountability partners how I use my advantages to serve her. I need to go through each of those advantages and say, how am I using all of these to wash her feet, to love her, and with my children also? I also need to make sure she has friends she can talk about my sin with. Otherwise, she's going to really feel isolated and feel forced to carry the pain of my sin all on her own because I am a sinner and I sin against her. She needs a place to talk about that. For every advantage I have, I need to have a plan in place for how I will use my advantages for her benefit. This is vital for all of us if we want to imitate Christ who made himself nothing to serve us and to seek our highest good. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. The vastness of his love is maybe the most vital benefit when it comes to having hope. No matter how big or bad a situation gets, we don't lose hope because God's love is bigger. It is greater. It anchors us and it remains steady and strong in our lives so that we can remain steady and strong. I would totally lose my way as a counselor, my counseling team, we would all lose our way as we try to walk alongside those who are suffering if it wasn't for this particular benefit, that his love is deeper and wider and stronger and as far as the heavens are above the earth. And I'm certain your, your pastors, your leaders feel the same way as they bear witness to the various pains as they try to walk alongside you as they see sins and heartaches and sufferings and that are just normal for Christians to witness as we bear one another's burdens. But it's not just for our counselors and pastors. It should be normal to a certain degree, normal for all of us to bear burdens like this because we can be advocates. We can express the love of Christ and bring his benefits to each other. I mean, I don't know your church community very well. I, I already know it's very friendly and kind. I felt like so warmly welcomed. I came here super early this morning and everybody was so kind to me. 
So maybe you're already doing this, but I want to just imagine this. Imagine if every person at Grace Hill had two or three people praying for them, calling them, bearing their burdens. I mean, just think, do you have someone in this church who can tell your 15-minute story of your life? That that 100% knows you in every category of temptation that you face. Imagine if you had two or three people like that. Imagine if no one was ever shamed or looked down on, no matter what sin they confessed during a small group, they were never shamed or looked down on. Imagine if suffering was never minimized, even the sufferings of our children, never never minimized but always met with compassion. Because of the gospel, every church has the chance to display this immense love of God and provide overwhelming hope to the hurting. Because of the grace of Christ, that is our potential for every relationship. We can bring the taste of wholeness, a taste of shalom, a taste of heaven, a, a fragrance of Christ himself into our relationships as we demonstrate his love. And we all need to experience this. That's why we are one body. That's why we are the church. We need to bring this to each other. Without it, our churches will forget the many benefits of God's love that we have been entrusted with to share with each other, to lift each other up. And if we forget those benefits, if we don't rehearse them with each other, we'll eventually forget to center our hearts on Christ's kingdom itself. The great hope in each of our lives is that in Christ we have a story of redemption. Even those of you who have perhaps been abused, maybe growing up or in a relationship, you don't just have a story of survival, you have a story of redemption, which means Christ is actively working in your life to give grace, to heal, to restore, and one day you will fully experience his restoring love complete when you see him face to face and he wipes away every tear. Until that day, may our churches be places where we wipe away each other's tears, where we care for each other, where we care for the vulnerable and the abused, that together we experience the love of Christ lifting our heads to see and to remember his restoring love and the freedom that comes when we live for his beautiful, humble, powerful kingdom and that kingdom alone. I want to close this in prayer and invite our our worship leader to come back up. Let me pray for us.